This podcast episode is powered by Afropods, the world's number one podcasting platform for African stories. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Startup Show, hosted by the Kenyan Wall Street. My name is Ali Mwakaneno Gakweli, your usual host, and uh, today we're sitting with Yoel Haile, who is the founder and CEO of Wine Life, which offers um, a lifestyle experience of, of wine. I think Yoel is in a better position to describe what they do here. And uh, we want to talk about you know, his experience in scaling a startup in Africa, Going back to his story, well, his story early in Mary Lynch to Aspira to now Wine Life and what are some of the things that he's picked up throughout the journey and uh, where he wants to take Wine Life and generally discuss other things that affect startups in the continent, such as regulation and how best they can raise funds. Welcome to the show, you all. Welcome, welcome, and thanks for having me today. All right, you all. So uh, before we get to know what you've done in your career, why are you in Africa, man? You, you left the United States and then went to China and then in Africa. What's up? Yeah, yeah. So I guess a little about myself. So I'm an I'm, I'm Eritrean American. Uh, so I was born and raised in the U.S. But I also had, I always had close ties to the continent. Uh, and a strong sense of nationality and pride in, in my country. Um, and have been visiting Eritrea since, you know, since we got our independence and um, going in a few years and visiting family there. Uh, I think if I look at my career journey, I think when I was at Merrill Lynch, I was able to spend two years working in Hong Kong and really do a lot of traveling around uh, Southeast Asia. And it really opened up my eyes to the potential in emerging markets and, and growing economies. Um, so, you know, after I left Merrill Lynch and went back to business school, um, I was in business school for two years and I did my internship in the US. And I realized that, you know, the U.S. doesn't make sense for me professionally, um, and you know, I decided to focus my second year on finding opportunities on the continent mm-hmm. uh, and being able to move here and create impact and do work and you know, hopefully, eventually, even be able to do uh, a few projects in Eritrea. Right, so, my, for my new listeners, if you if you don't know Yoel yet, so Yoel started out his career in G actually back in in two thousand seven. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So um, my background was in engineering. So when I was an undergrad, I uh, spent some time at GE working on steam and gas turbines, uh, spending a lot of time in factories. And uh, my background is as an industrial engineer. So a lot of my classmates ended up going into those types of fields where they're helping to companies, you know, become more efficient and design their supply chains. Uh, I always had a passion for um, the stock market, so decided to do something a little bit different and um, applied to one bank and applied to work in Merrill Lynch and made it through the interview process and they offered me a job. Uh, this was back in 2008, so right in the middle of the financial crisis, uh, got the opportunity to join the firm and yeah, I had a good uh, four years working there um, and that was kind of my first foray into the finance sector. Um, and you know, I've Stayed mostly in the finance sector since then. Um, spent a lot of time in the fintech space here in Kenya. Uh, you know, I started a company called Aspira, right. uh, which is a buy now, pay later, digital hire purchase company. Mm-hmm. Um, so spent three years running that and building up the business uh, before more recently jumping into the lifestyle space and, and, and starting Wine Life. Uh, so you, of course, uh, this is this is your second startup in Kenya. So Aspira and then and then Wine Life. What has been your experience, you know, trying to scale up a startup in, in Kenya and uh, maybe in Africa in general? Yeah, yeah. So, so my experience is it is very difficult to, to scale up um, businesses here and in, in, on the continent. You know, so I've been lucky to be able to do that in three different industries. And I think there's a lot of you know, the same core tenants regardless of what industry you're in, right? So, you know, I spent two and a half years at ALU, so I got some experience in the education space in terms of, you know, how it is to work in the education startup space. And, and we opened up two campuses in Mauritius and Rwanda, and, you know, got to see the ease of doing business in, in, in both markets, as well as, you know, how difficult it was to do, um, you know, a pan-African business based in South Africa. 
Um, and one of the challenges that we had at, at the time was getting uh, a student visas and work visas for our, our staff uh, and, and the students. And that's why it didn't make sense to set up our business in South Africa. So we, so we did a, a lot of research and identified Mauritius and Rwanda as two countries where it's quite easy to get your, your assets, your, your human resources to that country. Um, and eventually we opened up campuses in, in, in both countries. Um, so, you know, I think, and then, you know, going to Aspira, um, you know, we also did market research and identified a few markets that make sense to, you know, launch a digital financial service product, right? And I think if you look at a lot of fintech organizations that are setting up, they identify Kenya as a prime place to set up this type of business because, you know, your consumer is naturally comfortable using financial services on their phone. Um, you know, and M-Pesa and a lot of these lending apps have been able to build that, um, you know, awareness and, and, and making consumers comfortable with that over the last 10, 15 years. Um, you know, so if you look at the fintech space, you know, Kenya makes a lot of sense because, you know, you don't have to open physical branches all over the place. You, right. you have that infrastructure in terms of uh, smartphone penetration and then you're just being comfortable using financial services on the phone more so than most countries around the world, right? So, you know, Kenya's a great hub for, you know, any new fintech to try to, to test out new concepts um, because your user base is very comfortable with, um, you know, using mobile phones for, for digital financial services. And then and now moving into, you know, wine life, um, you know, one thing that was attractive about this market was, you know, you have, uh, a good-sized population that has spending power, mm-hmm. and you have very low penetration in terms of uh, wine consumption, especially compared to other countries um, in, in the region. Um, so, so yeah. So I mean, I think if you're looking at a business, I mean, it's important to do your market research and, and and find out, you know, is this a place where I can set up and, and operate, right? So, you know, if I'm looking at the education sector, South Africa is a very difficult place to set up. Uh, whereas, you know, Mauritius and Rwanda were countries where you were able to get accreditation and approvals and then also get your, your, your assets and resources there. Um, if I look at the fintech space, you know, Kenya is a very easy place to set up and get running uh, as a fintech business. Um, you know, there are other challenges, you know, especially if you're doing lending in terms of, you know, what are the controls and, and, and measures you can take to recover the money that you've lent, right? So I would say Kenya is a place where you know, that legal system and those structures haven't been developed as much as other markets. Uh, so if you're doing un- unsecured lending, mm-hmm. uh, it, it can be very risky if your credit model isn't designed properly. Can you delve a little bit better into what other markets are doing to just make sure that companies get their money back? Because uh, again, uh, I believe that Kenyans, Kenyan fintech is already expanding to, uh, to other African countries. Yeah, yeah. So. When, when we looked at lending at Aspira, I mean, there's two things when you're looking at a consumer. So you look at your consumer and identify, okay, this is someone who's able to repay X amount of dollars per month, mm-hmm. uh, and this is their probability of default, you know, using credit scores and other data points. But ultimately, at the end of the day, once you've lent to a customer, there's ability to repay and willingness to repay. Um, so when we're looking at markets, you know, Rwanda was actually quite attractive because there's a strong willingness to, to repay your loans and, and, and really stay on top of your debt. Uh, at the same time, Rwanda is a very small market compared to Kenya and Uganda and some of the other countries in this region. Um, you know, so we decided to focus on, on Kenya initially, knowing that if we can prove that there's uh, product market fit, it's, it's very easy now to go to Rwanda, especially you know, looking at some of the retail partners that we have, uh, a lot of them have operations in Uganda and Rwanda. Um, so, I mean, you know, I think Kenya, uh, in terms of fintech, there's a large um, pool of consumers who are very comfortable, um, you know, accessing loans or financial services from their phone. Um, and there's a lot of data out there to, to give you as a fintech company a better understanding of what are the risks for an individual. And that's been built up by you know, all the companies who've been lending here from, you know, you know, the past 10 years, right? So they, they've learned, uh, they've helped build up the accuracy of the credit scores. So now, you know, if you're coming in as a fintech lender in this space, uh, and, you know, I, I found credit score to be very 
predictive in terms of sloping, um, you know, the probability of default for a certain credit score versus the reality. Um, you know, it was pretty much um, right on the dot, you know, in terms of the credit bureaus that we've worked with. Now, on top of that, you can build other layers of protection. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, ultimately, depending on what type of lending you're doing, you have to know at the end of the day, um, it, it might be difficult to recover from uh, on a non-performing loan. Uh, or it might be too expensive to go and try to recover on that loan, right? So the biggest product that we would finance was mobile phones, right? So if you look at a mobile phone and, you know, within six months, you know, the screen will probably be cracked. Uh, the model will be out of date. So that value of that phone is, you know, worth less than half. It depreciates really quickly. Exactly, exactly. So if you look at someone who's, you know, not repaying their loan, uh, and the value of that asset and then the cost to recover that asset and, and trying to even track down that customer, uh, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily make sense. Uh, so what you find is a lot of companies actually outsource their collections um, and, you know, even that regular follow-up with their customer base. And, you know, ultimately they're looking at, you know, what, what is your core business, right? And your core business is being able to screen and evaluate customers. So when we were building Aspira, we did an exercise where, you know, we identified what are the core functions of the organization that we want to keep in house versus what we want to outsource, right? So we outsourced things like collections. We outsourced our sales agents and the management of the sales agents. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because there's a lot of businesses out there whose expertise and focus is that, right? Or even our call center was another function that we outsourced, um, and. You know, sometimes as a business, it might be slightly more expensive to outsource rather than build it in-house. But, you know, going back to, you know, what is it that is your core business and your core capability? Uh, and you want to focus on that and, you know, keep your team lean and focus on that. So even the first year when we were building Aspira, um, you know, it took us about a year to go to market from um, when we first set up the company. Uh, you know, we had a team of four. Um, and, the, you know, I think the lesson from there is as a startup, you know, you don't need to have a massive team and massive overheads to be able to build a product and go to market. Um, you know, you can outsource certain functions. You know, we outsource our tech development initially, mm-hmm. and then we, we brought it in-house uh, once we went to market. Uh, and the benefit of that was that, you know, we didn't have to manage a, a tech team in-house, which wasn't our core expertise and our core focus. Our core focus was understanding if there's part of market fit, doing pilots, onboarding the right partners who will be able to help us build our brand awareness and grow our loan book. Um, so we focused on that, outsourced all the other key functions, and then we were able to um, you know, take our business uh, to market with, with just a team of four people. But then uh, there's the fact that a couple of startups have in- interacted with tend to tend to pivot. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you handle, you know, the pivoting with without with when most of your services are outsourced? So, my experience on that startups has been, you know, taking a very agile main approach, right? So, if you're developing a, a tech product, right? So, I look at how we did our initial development at Aspira and how we've kind of looked at things at Winelife as well, and you know, you test out a lot of different concepts. Um, you know, to give an example, um, you know, with Wine Life, we've done a lot of different partnerships with uh, different bars and hotels and restaurants and golf clubs uh, to get a better understanding of different neighborhoods, right? So because if you're looking at the hospitality space and you're going to have physical assets in terms of your locations, uh, it costs a lot of money to set up a new branch somewhere, right? So, you know, you want to be in the right neighborhoods. Um, where there's a, a core target market that you know will come and enjoy your services, right? So, um, you know, when we set up our first location in Bibiri and we're looking for additional locations, you know, a lot of people were asking us to you know consider Karen and Lavington and all these places. But you know, rather than just going and finding a location and opening up and then realizing that there's no product market fit, what we did is we actually did pop ups with other bars, right? And you know, people might look at it and say. You know, why would you go to another establishment which is competitor? But you know, it's not necessarily a winners take all market, right? And you know, there's a benefit to both sides, right? So we have some good relationships with 
some other establishments here in Nairobi. Um, and you know, we were able to push some of our core target market to come to our events there and, and, and uh, you know, vice versa, you know, being able to access their core customer base and tell them about what we're doing uh, at our other branch. Um, the whole time, you know, take us taking the financial risk and doing a profit share uh, in terms of like the wine tasting that we've done on the road. Right. Uh, so that's given us a lot of insights about where, you know, we should be opening and, and what makes sense for our model. Um, you know, which led us to opening our second location outside of Nairobi. You know, we felt that there's a bigger opportunity in this space outside of Nairobi. So, you know, we have our core kind of first location here in Gigiri. Um, but, you know, we've been really focused on opportunities outside of Nairobi, right? So, and looking at, you know, going back to, you know, who is your target market, right? And if you're looking at wine, your target market is, you know, there's tourists, there's expats, um, there's middle to upper, upper class Kenyans. And what do all these people have in common is that, you know, they're not always in Nairobi, right? So you look at what destinations that people travel to, um, Naivasha and Nakura are popular weekend getaways. And you know, there's a road that goes to those cities, right? Uh, and on that road, there's a very beautiful place called uh, the Viewpoints. We have a beautiful view of the Rift Valley, you know, which is a UN World Heritage Site, and it's probably one of the busier roads in Kenya. Um, and you know, personally, you know, it's a place where I would enjoy stopping mm-hmm. um, on my travels on that road, and you know, I would always wonder, you know, how can someone not build something here targeting these. Uh, consumers, right? Uh, and you know, ultimately decided to take a risk. Um, you know, invested some capital and got a container, uh, got our license to get permits, and plopped a container down there. And you know, the hypothesis was, you know, people would stop here on their on the way, um, you know, to Naivasha on the way back to Nairobi, and hopefully pick up some uh, bottles of wine to take with them for the weekend, or enjoy some wines there and enjoy the. the you know, the beautiful view. Um, you know, so it was, you know, a low risk uh, pilot, I would say, um, because ultimately if it didn't work out, you know, you have an asset that you can move to another location or sell in terms of the back container. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what we found, you know, a couple months in is that, you know, there's huge potential in terms of uh, profitability of that model. Um, and, you know, so it's been going well. It's been about seven months since we opened that branch. Um, it's actually more profitable than our main branch here in Nairobi. Wow. So, you know, when I took a step back, you know, and looked at the model of what we've done there in terms of how much cost it took us to set up and the period of time to recover on your investment, um, I'd much rather focus on other opportunities like that, um, whether it's in Kenya or in other markets. Um, and then as opposed to taking significant upfront capital and investment to open and then another location in Nairobi where you have hundreds of competitors. What's, let's, I feel like you, you've talked about wine life, but then it might be new to our listeners. Uh, tell us about the, what does wine life do and what's the story behind, behind the company? Sure, sure. So, um, you know, so, so me and uh, so my, my business partner, um, you know, has some background in terms of being a private chef and also selling wine. Um, I'm, I'm a fan of wine, uh, not an expert by any means, but I think one thing that was a big gap for me living in Kenya was it was very difficult to find good wine. Mm-hmm. And when you go out to certain places, it's, it's tough to find places that serve wine at the right temperature or staff who are able to articulate and, and be able to sell wine. Um, and, and for people who are wine drinkers, uh, to not be able to find that anywhere, you move on now to other products in terms of, you know, whether it's spirits or beers. Uh, now, in terms of consumers who are new to wine, maybe they get exposed to certain brands of wine, which are mass market and relatively low cost, but not really great quality wine. And of your first experience with wine, it's not a good experience in terms of taste or hangover or whatever it might be. And yeah, probably for a, a variety of factors, including not serving it at the right temperature. Like a red wine should be slightly chilled, for example. And the taste would be significantly different than serving it at room temperature. Um, 
so small things like that, I think, have contributed to the low uh, market penetration of wine in Kenya, as opposed to other markets with similar spending power. So, you know, our hypothesis was initially to, you know, build a, you know, e-commerce business focused on selling wine and educating consumers and helping them find the types of wines that make sense for their palates. Um, you know, we had an opportunity to take on a physical location here in Kigiri and decided to give it a shot, you know, and if it didn't work after a few months, then we can shift back to being focused on, you know, digital and, and tech and, and, and those types of sales, especially with COVID and, and curfews and all these restrictions limiting bars and restaurants um, over the past year. Um, so we opened up in September here in Nigiri. And one of the things we want to do and focus on is wine education, right? So everything from how to hold a glass of wine to what temperature the wine should be served at to going much deeper depending on who's in the audience and, and, and getting specific about the types of grapes um, and, and you know, the, the stories behind different types of wines. So we did that through our signature event, which is a weekly tasting on, on Thursdays. Mm -hmm where we go through three or four lines um, and it's very interactive uh, and we even have an MC and a DJ and then someone who's very knowledgeable on wines um, the tasting lasts about an hour right and, and usually we serve about 100 to 150 people so doing a wine tasting you know for you know five to ten people um, is difficult in itself so imagine doing it for 100 people so it's a very coordinated exercise and show um, that allows people who are new to wine as well as people who are experienced in wine to be able to enjoy wine in a very interactive and fun experience. So, so what is wine like at the end of the day? It's, you know, building awareness about wine uh, in a market where awareness is low and making it, you know, interactive and, and a fun experience. Uh, so, you know, I believe what we are is much more than a bar or a bar with two branches or a bar with four branches. Um, you know, so our core product offering is, you know, being able to curate and find a selection of high quality wines and designing experiences around it um, that allow consumers to, you know, comfortably be able to access and, and learn about the wine and, and, and try different wines. So um, we, we were having this conversation earlier with you and, and one of my one of my questions was why Nairobi? I mean you mentioned that in Africa we have we have other cities where it's easier to um, to access human resources, for example. And when it comes to the product that you're dealing with here, in this case, it's wine. We have bigger wine cities. So why why Nairobi? Why not Joba? Why not Kinshasa? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so those are definitely markets that you know we definitely want to go into over time. Uh, you know, I think Nairobi happened first because. Uh, you know, we were based here mm -hmm. and, you know, it was a new concept that we were trying out, right? So going back to being able to pivot and adjust your model, you know, initially we were focused on getting an e-commerce wine business in Nairobi, which, you know, we thought was an attractive space to be in and still believe it's an attractive space to be in. How would that look like, given that, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to bridge, you know, the experience versus in, in e-commerce. Could you break that down for me? Yeah, yeah. So there's a couple companies that you know do e-commerce, um, you know, specifically focused on spirits here, and and the ones that do well, you know, what do they succeed on? They succeed on pricing and speed to delivery to customers. Right. But what they don't succeed on is knowledge of the products that they're selling. Right. So it's you know we have these 300 brands and these are the prices and we'll deliver to you. Whereas when you look at wine, it's a much more intimate experience when, you, when you're ordering it, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, just to give an example, in Nigeria, we have about 95 different types of wine. Um, so when a consumer comes here, it's important that your staff is able to articulate the difference between these wines. Uh, and how do you do that? You know, it's having staff that actually have consumed the wine. Right? So you look at a lot of um, you know, whether it's e-commerce companies or hotels and bars and restaurants, their staff has actually not tried their products. It's, it's, it's very expensive to do that exercise, right? And if you look at, you know, beyond staff turnover, mm -hmm. um, you know, opening a bottle of wine and having your team try it and, and be educated about it 
you know, it's a cost for the business. Um, so a lot of people don't invest in that or invest in knowing how to store wine properly or, you know, have it at the right temperature. Um, but it's those small things that is what wine drinkers appreciate. Um, so for example, if you order a bottle of white wine on e-commerce, you expect it to come chilled, right? So it's not just about speed of delivery, it's about speed of how fast you can consume it once it arrives. So if you get a, a bottle of white wine at room temperature, now you have to chill it for the next few hours, but you want to consume it now. So it's small things like that that we do on our e-commerce side, um, you know, that really drive value to, to, to the consumers. So sort of making sure that the product is ready to be consumed when it wants to be consumed, as opposed to just having the product and then letting the consumer figure out how they're going to prepare the product for consumption. Exactly. So I would say that, and then also understanding what the customer wants, right? So, um, you know, the customer might come to us and say, you know, I want, um, you know, a semi-sweet wine or a fruitier wine. And being able to articulate, these are a few ones that we have on our menu, already puts us ahead of other players in the space. Um, but, you know, looking um, beyond that, um, you know, how do you differentiate, differentiate yourself from um, the experience that you're offering to customers? Um, taking a step back, so why are we focused on wine as opposed to spirits? Um, you know, so as I mentioned earlier, spirits, what, what is the differentiator that you have as an e-commerce business? It's, it's cost and speed of delivery. Um, and it's, you know, more of a spontaneous purchase than, than wine. You know, wine is a very personal experience. It's, you know, I'm having salmon for dinner. What is the best wine that goes with it? I've had a rough week of work and, you know, I want a full-bodied red wine to unwind with by the fireplace. Um, so, and there's much more variety, right? So if you look at whiskey, an e-commerce shop might have five different brands, which the market knows. Um, you know, whereas with us, you know, if you're looking for that full body red wine, you might have 10 different wines and each has their own story um, and, and different peculiarities between the, the flavors, right? So it's a, it's a very personal experience, um, you know, so you have to have highly knowledgeable staff who are able to, you know, sell the story behind the wine as, as well as sell the wine. Um, so it's, it's, it's much more intimate. Um, and it requires a lot of investment in terms of training your staff and, and curating a selection that meets the, the needs of the market. Um, so one of the things that we're also doing is collecting data on, you know, what is the type of wines that make sense in this market from different cost perspectives, from different flavors, um, and figuring out, you know, these are the types of wines that would be very successful in this market. And now looking at finding wines globally that would make sense to fill those, those gaps and needs. Okay. Just to sort of reflect on the business that you're currently running right now, which is, which is lifestyle, which focuses on, on, on wine and enhancing the whole wine experience versus some of the things that you were doing earlier, which is say, um, FinTech Respira. How does the food, sorry, the lifestyle business differ from, you know, other startups like fintech yeah so i think one key difference between fintech and lifestyle is you know in fintech your customer is you know it's it's a it's a name it's an id number it, you know it's something on a database uh and often you don't interact directly with your customer right um whereas with wine it's very different you know often your first point of interaction is in person right so it's important that you're able to articulate you know what is your brand is about and, and then be able to to sell that wine um and then the story behind the wine you know if i look at a lot of the elements of the business you know whether it's lifestyle whether it's fintech whether it's education you know most businesses have the same key functions in the background right you need marketing operations finance um you know, someone who's focused on, you know, understanding your customer and getting constant feedback from them and improving your customer service, um, tech and IT. Um, so, you know, when, you, when you're starting a business, you don't necessarily need to be an expert in that space, right? Um, 
but you know, do you have the right team of people who can come together and be able to deliver that service now to customers, right? So if I look at our team at Wine Life, it comes from a multi-year background in hospitality. Uh, a lot of them have worked at five-star hotels, both here in Kenya and internationally. Um, but you know, people who come from a hospitality background might not be as strong in terms of you know coming up with a pricing strategy or coming up with a marketing plan to develop brand awareness, right? So you know, if you look at you know you know why someone like me is jumping into that space, you know, I, I look at myself as you know mortgage analyst, right? So, you know, having started and, and ran a fintech business, mm-hmm. you need to have a, a solid understanding of these areas, and once you do, you know. Now you can go into a variety of industries because at the end of the day, the product that you're selling is the product that you're selling is the only thing that's different, right? So before, what was I doing at Aspira? I was giving consumers access to credits, um, you know, unsecured credits, quick and easy, and then and doing a much better alternative than a bank in terms of that type of financing, and it's a very niche type of financing. What am I doing now in terms of wine life? I'm offering consumers access and knowledge in terms of you know what 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 is wine about and, and being able to deliver them products and allow them to engage with products in very interactive experiences. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know what, what what's what's behind any business, right? It's it's the core um, strength of your back office and your operations and. Being to understand what the consumer wants, being able to retain that consumer, and being able to grow awareness right through those consumers, referring your business to other individuals, or through you know different marketing techniques to be able to promote your brand. Um, so I would say that you know at a high level, you know fintech and lifestyle are both very different industries, but you know a lot of it is actually very similar. And you know once you figure out the unit economics of your business and you know you're able to crack it um, you know, that's when you now focus on how to scale a business right which is once again a different skill set than most people in hospitality uh, because you know even if you look at a lot of leading bars and restaurants globally you know their focus is on one location because it's, sometimes it's tough to scale what it is that that key person or that key chef is bringing to the table right so if I look at you know what is wine life's core uh, tenets and what are we about and what distinguishes us, you know, it's, it's it's not the food, right? You know, we offer food because it's complementary and 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 you know someone who's enjoying wine, you know, wants a cheese platter or a lunch or dinner with their wine. Uh, but at the, at the end of the day, why are they coming to to wine life in our branches and our events? It's to experience a variety of different wines, to enjoy it, and be part of the community of new wine drinkers, right? So we're trying to increase market penetration of wine across East Africa and build a community of people who are learning and growing um, throughout it, right? So, you know, some of the things that we're investing in is designing education programs for corporates and individuals, you know, to be able to learn about wine in a safe and comfortable space that's very flexible to their schedules. Um, and you might ask, you know, why would you invest so much in promoting awareness and all, all these things? But if you look at the long-term vision of the company, uh, you know, one of the things we want to get into is, you know, owning and bringing in our own wines into the market. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, having a retail footprint uh, across East Africa and being able to position those brands now um, so much so that, you know, if I go to a vineyard and say, hey, you know, we're wine like this is what we're about and this is our presence across the region. Uh, as a vineyard, now you have one brand who you can work with, which is much easier than, you know, partnering four or five different importers um, in, in different countries. Um, you know, it's a one-stop shop where, you know, you can, you know, Educate consumers and introduce new wine brands to, to a region where market penetration is very low, but it's, it's also growing um, quite quickly. So at the moment, it's more about um, handling wine as a category before we get to you know specific products, which which is where you want to take the company. Exactly, exactly. So you know, even if I look back at you know my time at Aspira, you know what we were focused on higher purchase and 
higher purchase existed in Kenya in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of went away because there wasn't enough data um, out there for people to be able to lend comfortably to consumers. So, so the businesses weren't profitable. But now, you know, over the last five years, there's a lot more data and credit scores are much more reliable. There's just been all these lenders in the space. So we were not just only launching in the, in the market, but we were educating users about a new type of finance that they were not comfortable with or did not know existed um, at the time. So sometimes when you're entering a space where your penetration is low or you're the first mover in that market, the first step is actually education, educating the market about what it is that you're offering, uh, building that trust and confidence and, and, and building up a consumer base who can go out there and be your brand ambassadors. So I think that those are two things that I found to be very similar in terms of you know, if I look at the first year or the first two years when you know, when I was starting Aspira versus the first year now of starting Wine Life, you know, you're investing a lot in terms of educating and creating that awareness, trying to lock in that user and, and, and keep them sticky, um, and then expand over time, right? So, you know, with Aspira, that was, you know, expanding in terms of the retailers and products that we financed mm-hmm. and expanding outside of Nairobi to Mombasa. Um, you know, with wine life, it, it, it's similar, right? So it's, you know, creating a different series of events and experiences to keep your consumer coming back, bringing in new products for them to try. So always keeping your, your menu fresh in terms of selection, uh, and then also expanding over time. So being able to offer a certain type of experience in multiple cities and markets. As, as a founder, of course, what are some of the things that you've done at wine life that you're proud of? What are some of the little milestones that keep you going. Yeah, yeah. So I think one thing that's great about this industry is you know, you're able to get that feedback and customers immediately, right? So I remember there was one customer, uh, a woman in her early 20s who used to always come to Wildlife on uh, Thursdays with her father. And her feedback was that, you know, her father was a wine drinker and she just got into wine drinking by coming to Wildlife with friends. And now she comes with her father and she's been able to build stronger bond with her father and then develop that type of connection that didn't exist before, right? Mm-hmm. So if you look at, you know, being able to bring together communities of people, but also, you know, in terms of employment, right? So, you know, we've been able to create 25 jobs in the hospitality sector during COVID. Uh, and that's one of the, the toughest hit sectors um, due to COVID. Uh, so being able to create employment and you know, at the end of the day, when you build a product, you know, if you look at FinTech, you build a product and, you know, you, you look at your dashboard and you see lent, you know, to 100 customers today. Um, it's just a number on the dashboard. You know, when you do an event and you have 100 customers who are coming regularly every weekend and leaving, um, having enjoyed, you know, their experience and, and, and getting value for the money that they spent, um, it's, it's, it's also a good feeling, right? To, to be able to see, you know, something that, you know, didn't exist that, that you were able to create and, and then deliver value to consumers. Um, so, so that's always rewarding, you know, when you're, you know, at one of your branches and, and you know, you, you see customers engaging with your product and enjoying it and coming back and referring to come back. Uh, it's, it's, it's a signal that you have found product market fit. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's about, you know, pulling the right level levers um, to be able to grow and scale your business. Um, you know, so a lot of people ask, you know, what is the goal of Wine Life or like where are you trying to go with the business? And it's difficult to answer because I don't think there's many similar businesses to us, uh, not just in Kenya, uh, but globally. Like if you look at a chain of, you know, bars focused on selling wine, right? So the example I give people is, is Java House, right? And Java House, found a niche that you might say is easy to replicate. You know, you're selling coffee and food in a cafe and you're selling branches in, in different locations. But, you know, what was the key to their success, right? And the key to the success was, you know, a few different reasons um, from consistency of, you know, their offerings in terms of their food and coffee, consistencies in terms of look and feel their branches and, you know, really investing in, in human resources and, 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 and their people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were able to grow from, you know, opening a new branch every year to eventually opening a couple branches every year and, you know, now being present in multiple markets, right? So 
you know, if I look at where I see wine life going, you know, we want to kind of follow the same path, right? So, you know, been blessed to be able to open two locations during COVID and have them doing well. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we're not trying to stop there, right? So, you know, what, you know, this is not something that, you know, I would invest so much time and energy and capital into it if I just thought it was going to be one or two branches, right? You know, if you look at a lot of, you know, business owners who own, you know, restaurants and, and bars, it, you know, sometimes it's a passion product, right? And, you know, they, they have one location and it's, it's a place for them to enjoy with their networks and, um, you know, maybe make a little bit of money, but, you know, that, that might not be the core focus. Uh, where, you know, I, as I think for us, you know, our, our core focus is, you know, opening four or five branches in Kenya, uh, opening branches in uh, key markets um, like, you know, Uganda, Ethiopia, Congo, and, and really capturing the, the benefits of, of scale, right? You know, so if you have a really strong executive team in terms of a CFO, a CMO, a COO, and a focus on you know Pan-African reach, or you know, maybe even possibly uh, you know branches outside the continent. Right. You know, if I look at my experiences traveling around the world, you know, I do think this is a concept that will work well in other markets outside Africa as well, where wine penetration might be higher, but at the same time, no one's really you know, doing a model similar to us in terms of building education and awareness and making it an interactive experience focused on wine. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of different directions that, you know, this business can go to over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as you said earlier, you talked about pivoting, you know, there might be a few more pivots for us in the future. Um, so, but, you know, I think, you know, Java is a good model that shows if, you know, if you're able to get you know, consistency, customer service, and quality, you know, consistent across multiple branches, um, you know, that's a business you can scale up and, and, and really drive down some of your costs and expenses uh, and have a strong brand that, you know, that attracts people, you know, so that if you're traveling to Naivasha or Biani for the weekend and you want to go out for a drink, you know that there's a wine right there and you'll have a certain type of experience. Um, so, you know, at the same time, also looking at, um, if you look at cities like Naivasha, Nippu, and Kasumi, um, you know, tier two cities, if you want to call them in Kenya, uh, a lot of businesses don't target them because they don't think that there's enough of a market there for, you know, the type of investment and, uh, cost you would have when you're taking setting up a business. Um, you know, to give you an example, when we were opening our second location at the Viewpoints, you know, whether it was, you know, the county officials approving the liquor license and business permit mm-hmm. to, you know, the landlord who you're paying rent to, um, you know, to different suppliers and investors that you engage with, you know, there was a lot of question about, you know, why would you open there? Right, but at the end of the day, unit economics made a lot of sense, right? So, if you look at the, the business that we have there, you know, you know, the math showed to us that even with one to two customers every day, you know, we'd be able to call, cover and get to break even. Um, and you know, but I look at a typical weekend um, at that location. You know, we, we're engaging with about 100 customers. And you know, throughout the week, you know, you have your days where there might be no customers or just a couple of customers, but then you have days when you know a tourist group stops by there um, and, and they spend the whole afternoon there, right? So, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, as a business, um, you know, you don't need to have you know 500 customers coming through your door every single day, um, but if you really understand the economics and are able to manage them properly, um, get your marketing right, and get your back office right. Um, you know, you can really build a model that scales efficiently. Um, you know, so to set up, you know, four or five different branches with the same type of concept that we have in Rift Valley in terms of having a converted container um, would be cheaper than opening one branch in Nairobi. Um, so at the end of the day, you know, there's been opportunities that we've looked at for other locations in Nairobi, but, you know, I'd rather 
place a bet on opening five branches, then one, and having one or two of those branches not work out, and having three other great branches that are just you know generating steady cash flow and profits of the business on a monthly basis. To sort of just calculate the diversification. Exactly, exactly. So you know, it's like playing uh, you know relaxed at the casino, right? You know, you can you can bet it all on red or black, or you can you know bet on you know seven, nine, thirteen, right? Um, and the return could be quite good, right? So if you hit all of those numbers, you're getting a 36x return as opposed to a 2x when you're betting on red or black. Mm. Um, 2x or zero, right? So I think that's kind of the approach that we have in terms of what we're doing on the physical location side. Um, and then there's a lot of interesting stuff that we're doing in terms of partnerships with um, corporates and events outside of our branches. Because I think another thing that you need to do, especially in this COVID age, is to be flexible as a business and, and offer your experience out, outside of your core branches. Um, so, so one of the few things that we've done on that front, I mentioned doing pop-ups at bars as opposed to some of the physical locations there. Um, you know, we've been able to offer virtual wine tastings. Um, you know, we've done virtual wine tastings for companies like McKinsey. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've done in-person tastings um, you know, for other corporates here. Um, you know, we've been able to do events at um, some of the prominent golf clubs here. And also recently we've um, you know, signed an agreement with one of the top banks here uh, to be able to offer this wine-like experience at their events. Right, at their corporate functions, at their golf tournaments, um, and you know, offer that experience um, not just to their clients but to their their staff as well. And you know, we have designed a custom education program specifically for their staff and clients. So you're talking about offering something unique as a bank in terms of customer loyalty and retention to your customers, mm-hmm. um, offering uh, team bonding experience to your staff, um, and being able to access a large pool of people who are squarely within your target market. And if you look at, you know, whether it's a corporate or a bank, you know, why would you honor in such an initiative with a bar, right? But it's, once again, you know, why not? It's, it's more than just a bar, right? And if you look at, the type of reach you're trying to have countrywide, um, you know, banks, you know, have high net worth individuals and, and employees at all these major cities around the country. So if they wanted to partner with someone who can offer similar experience to us, there wouldn't be an alternative at the moment, right? So if we're able to build this footprint and open locations in you know, areas like the Makuru and, and Kasumu and, and then Mombasa, um, you know, it could be a one-stop shop for, um, you know, a Kenyan corporate to be able to partner with as a, as a supplier and uh, a vendor uh, who offer our experiences. Now, when we expand that across the region, you know, when we look at, you know, who are some of these Pan-African corporates um, and, you know, what, what do they want to offer? Do they want to offer offerings to their customer base? Do they want to offer um, offerings to their staff? Um, you know, wine life can be a, a go-to to offer, you know, these type of experiences, right? Um, in terms of doing, you know, wine tastings, um, in terms of hosting corporate functions at our locations. Um, so, so that's kind of the focus in terms of, you know, if you, if you want to scale, if you, if you want to target a large organization like that and then unlock, you know, large amounts of revenue, recurring revenue, consistent revenue, you know, you need to have the scale and reach. Um, so, so yeah, that's that's what we're building towards on, in terms of the retail footprint. Of course, we, we've talked about some of the milestones that you've achieved with with Wine Life, but then again, pinging back to your experience in Aspira and well, and now Wine Life, what are some of the challenges that you've you've encountered throughout the journey, and how have you learned to creatively navigate around them? So you know. This industry has a reputation for, you know, you know, if you don't have strong systems and processes in the back end, you can get hit for, you know, loss in terms of, you know, in terms, in terms of theft, in terms of spoilage, in terms of breakage. Um, you know, so there's a lot of time that we take into making sure that we have the right systems and processes in the back end to really monitor 
um, what's coming in and what's going out in terms of um, our, our product, in terms of wine, but also in terms of cash and payments as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because at the end of the day, you, know, you can have a very successful business that has a lot of customers coming in throughout the week, and at the end of the month, you sit there and you say, you know, okay, I didn't make any profit this month, right? So it's a combination of understanding human economics, but also having your systems and controls in place. Uh, I think the other thing that's important in this space is, you know, stakeholder management, right? So, you know, if I look at, you know, companies in the fintech space, you know, it's CBK, it's, it's treasury, right? Um, you know, whereas, you know, in this industry, you know, you're much more directly with the government, right? In terms of having a proper licensing in place, uh, you know, being sure that, you know, you're serving people at drinking age, you know, things like that. So. You know, stakeholder management is key no matter what industry you're in, but the stakeholders are much different, I would say, in, in the lifestyle space than in the fintech space. So that's been uh, an, an adjustment uh, and, and something that you know, have had to learn how to navigate. Mondo, um, just more looking at looking at the stakeholders here, and in this case, um, regulation. You, you mentioned that one of the things that we're lo- you're looking to look to do at Wine Life is essentially get to the point where you can bring in your own wine, and I believe this is this is importing. Yes. And if you're doing it in Kenya, hey, we have to talk about taxes here. Yeah. And um, from my conversations with with um, various investors, are uh, things like taxes are essentially well, are unavoidable. How do you how do you sort of um, think around that into Making sure that your your business is being is regulatory sound, as well as it's making you know business sense. You you're generating um, the revenues the right way, and you're covering all your overheads, including taxes, as well as preparing sort of for preparing for the unpredictability, if you'd rather, of our tax system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think you know if you go if you look at if you look at you know the business of wine, right? There's there's people who, who produce and own vineyards. There's people who export and import. Uh, there's people who do retail, and then there's people who, you know, the other bars in the hotel. So, so you look at as a consumer, you're only interacting with retail or you know the bars or hotels or whatever that first point of sale is. But there's a whole complicated chain, and. You know, this supply chain has been significantly affected as, as most supply chains with COVID, right? So if you look at things like, you know, container shortages globally, if you look at, you know, restrictions that, you know, some countries have had in terms of, you know, exporting and importing wine. Um, you know, one thing that I've seen is, you know, Kenya is one of the most difficult countries to import alcohol into, uh, just because the amount of, you know, checks and quality control that they have in place for starters. But also, if you look at importing anything into Kenya, it's difficult to get a sense of what the cost of importation is because you know the tax law is, is changing quite often, right? Um, you know, you can import a container, and there's a backlog uh, of ships at the port, uh, and every day you're paying additional charges to the, the ship carrier. You know, if, if, if the container hasn't been cleared. You know, you're, you're paying um, you know additional charges every day to now that that container is sitting and, and taking space at the port. Um, you know, once it's cleared, you know you have to get these stickers on every bottle that certifies that you know the duty has been paid for, and then you have to have some of the stored wines, uh, you know, a, a warehouse. So there's a lot of cost that adds up through that cycle um, that now gets pushed onto the end user, right? So a lot of people wonder why certain things are more expensive in Kenya mm-hmm. than in the US and Europe, right? And, you know, at times, you know, if I look at wine, the, the cost to land a bottle of wine here and clear it can be more expensive in many cases than the retail price of that same bottle of wine in South Africa, France, or the US. Wow. So a consumer has interacted with that wine in one of those markets and, you know, they come here and they see they're going for twice the price. They feel ripped off. They feel ripped off, but at the same time, you know, the price they expect it to be sold at is less than what your your cost to purchase the wine is, right? So, um, you know, I think a lot of consumers don't understand that. And it's also difficult to, you know, because of that reason, you get some, you know, wines at certain cost points and quality points here in, in this market. 
um, it's, it's easier to get that into other markets, but it's, it's difficult to get that here. So, you know, for us as a business, you know, I mean, you're also looking at, you know, you're importing a container of wine and 10,000 bottles of wine. You know, you're looking at, you know, an investment of at least $100,000 just to bring you one container. Uh, and that container might take six months to get here. So that capital is spent up front and you don't know when that continues to come and you have to hope that you'll be able to sell it once it's here. So, you know, for our business model, you know, we haven't started doing that yet at the moment. So essentially we've outsourced that function uh, to other distributors who have been doing that in this market. Um, because it doesn't make sense for us in terms of the capital perspective, but also in, the, you know, in terms of the, you know, what are the core areas we're going to focus on as a business, right? So. You know, even when we get to a point when we're looking at importing, um, you know, is that something we want to partner with an existing distributor, you know, who's figured out and understands that supply chain better than, than we do? Um, so those are some of the things that we're thinking about and, you know, would potentially pivot um, over time. Uh-huh. Um, but at the moment, you know, we haven't started importing, um, but it's, it's definitely an area that we want to get into in some capacity. So um, lastly, uh, I was I was looking at your previous experiences, and you've worked with uh, you've worked with Fred Swanika at um, the Africa Leadership Group yeah. as a as a Chief Strategy Officer, and um, one of one of the things that you used to do there was was fundraising, and of course, um, as as a founder in in Aspira and now Wine Life, fundraising is something that you definitely have to have to think about. I understand that currently your two branches are self funded. Is that right? Self-funded, but uh, we borrow a bit of outside investment as well. How do how do um how do African or rather what would be your recommendation for African founders that are still you know navigating you know how to raise money to expand the, the startups? Yeah, yeah. So you know, I, I've seen a lot of great businesses in, in Kenya um, over, over my time here. Um, you know, I've invested in, in a few businesses as well. Um, I would say that, you know, when you interact with a business or a product and, 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 and you're, you're walked by experience um, and you look at it and say, yeah, well, wow, this is something that, you know, could scale or um, it, it makes sense. Uh, and I, I can see how this business would be you know, financially viable in the future. That's one thing. But the second thing is being able now as a founder to articulate that to investors. And I, I think that's where, you know, you run into challenges where you wonder why certain businesses are able to raise capital, which might not seem as attractive as other businesses which, which are struggling to, to raise even small amounts of capital, right? So, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, if I look at you know, WineLight, for example, it's the type of business that would attract a certain type of investor. You know, probably someone that has had experience investing in this sector, or someone who's you know a strategic alignment, right? You know, maybe it's you know someone who's uh, owns a vineyard or someone who runs a uh, you know a wine distribution business, right? Um, so you know, it's about targeting the right individual, but also the messaging and the story, right? Because you know, if you're raising, you know, let's say you want to set up. Uh, you know, a wine bar and, and compete with wine life in Kenya. Um, the story of, you know, a one branch wine shop, you know, it, it could be attractive, it could be financially viable, but it's a much different story than, you know, in terms, in terms of what we're trying to do with, with, with our brand and expand and, and why we want to expand. You know, we're not expanding just to say, hey, these are locations that are financially viable, but it's about you know, building a broader presence, you know, for your product and offering. Um, so, you know, that, you know, a lot of investors, you know, ask or look for businesses that are able to scale. And then that, that's the reason why they look for these types of businesses, right? So if you look at, you know, businesses that aren't able to scale, you know, they're quite limited in terms of their potential and their potential return for investors. So, um, you know, I think you know my advice for founders would be you know to understand your business and, and the types of investors would be interested in your business and then being able to articulate what is the vision and story that that you're pitching to them um, and you know there's a lot of companies that help help with that process right because you know if I'm a founder in you know 
the hospitality sector or the fashion sector or you know agriculture. My background might not be in terms of you know putting together an investment deck or a financial model. Um, but there's resources out there, and there's companies that can help you know help you clearly articulate your story. Um, because I've seen a lot of businesses that have great stories and great potential, but you know you look at their investor deck or investor memo and it's something that's you know a bit scattered and, and, and it doesn't really tell the story of what the brand is and what they're trying to do and the accomplishments that they've made so far. Um, so I would say that there's that and then there's also looking at things that make your you know business attractive to investor right so you know you can find a lot of people interested in investing in your business but you know how do you value your business and sometimes that's a very difficult exercise right so you know you know, for example, one of the things that we're trying to do is get it, lock in a few sources of recurring revenue. Mm-hmm. So if you look at a business like Wine Lives and what an investor would look at or what an investor would be worried about would be something like recurring revenue, right? And then the importance of recurring revenue is it gives you stability in times that your normal full form traffic would be down, right? So a big reason why we've invested in going after strategic partners who could provide us this recurring revenue uh, is that you know, we have a sense of stability and can go to an investor and say, you know, there's X million shillings in recurring revenue that we have as a business on a monthly basis, our overheads are this. So going into a month, we've already covered our overheads with a little bit of recurring revenue. So everything else is, in terms of sales is, is just profit, right? Um, you know, whereas Another business similar to ours, you know, would just focus on that regular traffic, which you know could be hit by things like tighter restrictions than COVID. Um, you look at you know how to value a business. Sometimes there's things that might seem small. You know, let's say there's a business that gives you a recurring revenue of a thousand dollars a month, um, but you know that goes a long way towards you know, justifying you know, what is the valuation of your business. You know, if you have 10 businesses that are giving you, or 10 clients are giving you a thousand a month in uh, recurring revenue, you know, that's $10,000 that can go towards new overheads of the business. So, um, you know, looking at the nature of your business and figuring out, you know, what it is that's going to make it attractive from a valuation perspective to investors. It's, you know, having a stream of recurring revenues, it's having feedback in terms of your customers and having done some consumer research. Um, you know, it's have done some type of pilot even if it's a small scale. Um, you know, if we were looking to raise investment to open a, a new branch in a new city, what I would do as a first step would be to go and do a couple of pop-up events and just track you know, the customers who came, uh, the types of revenues and, and, and costs that were associated with that pop-up. And, you know, now show that to an investor and, and project, you know, what the actual financial viability of that location is, right? So, you know, sometimes doing a small, you know, pilot can go a long way in terms of, you know, showing an investor that you've very well done your market research and thought about the cost and expenses associated with you know, whether it's opening a new branch in our case, but going after a new initiative as a, as a business, right? So about the bottom of fintech business and looking to launch a new product, um, what basis am I using to do that take, that, that expansion and what is that product? So one thing that we did quite a bit that is there is a lot of uh, consumer research before we would actually go into launching a, a new feature or functionality. Um, and having that comfort, you know, with our existing customer base and essentially new clients that this is something that they actually want or, or need. Um, and then taking a look at now and what the cost would be to actually go live with that, you know, functionality or, or feature. Um, and, you know, it, it can be quite simple. It can be something that can be done over a week or a few weeks. But I think a lot of people you know, try to go out there and raise money having not done enough consumer research or, or pilots to justify that there is some opportunity in this space. Um, this might be a good idea, but if you haven't done that and shown the investor that you're the right person to be able to, um, you know, fill this market need and, 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 and get to that valuation, 
uh, then it'll be difficult to convince them to you know invest at, at that valuation. This is actually all I had for today. Um, is there anything that maybe you'd like to add on? Um, no, no, it was a pleasure to uh, speak with you and hope to host you uh, at future branches and um, hopefully maybe one day get back on the podcast once we're in multiple markets and then talk about how that next phase of our journey has been and um, you know, how we're able to pull it off. Looking forward, man. Uh, to our listeners, that was Joel Heiler, the founder and CEO of Wine Life. Uh, be sure to check them out on, on the website. Thank you so much for joining today's discussion. See you next time. Goodbye.